We would like to advise that the following program may contain real news, occasional philosophy, and ideas that may offend some listeners. This is The Future This Week. On Sydney Business Insights, I'm Sandra Peter. And I'm Kai Rima. Every week we get together and look at the news of the week. We discuss technology, the future of business, the weird and the wonderful, and things that change the world. Okay, let's start. Let's start. Today on The Future This Week, welcome to Season 6 with Hidden YouTube Fame and Ghost Kitchens. I'm Sandra Peter, I'm the Director of Sydney Business Insights. I'm Kai Rima, Professor at the Business School and Leader of the Digital Structure Research Group. So we're back. Looks like it. Sounds like it, more like it. Sounds like it. It's been a bit of a break. Yes, and now we're back for season six of The Future This Week. Exciting. There's a lot of things that happened while we were away. We have, of course, been outraged at a whole number of things, such as the realization that Facebook has been paying people to listen to users' private voice memos. (gasps) Outraged, but not outraged. The company did admit to using human reviewers to help with AI transcriptions. But then again, all the users have given consent for this to happen. So we're not quite sure what the big outrage is. But in a similar vein, Microsoft's new privacy policy also admits that humans are listening to some of your conversations. Instagram influencers cried over the company hiding the likes from their posts. So that was drama. Libra's happened since we've been away. Yeah, Facebook announced its own cryptocurrency, something that we will come back to for sure. We'll probably have a special cryptocurrency, not cryptocurrency. Then there was Uber announcing its financial results and the world wondering how could Uber lose $5 billion in a single quarter. So that made news and we will come back to this. Actually, we're going to be doing a whole special on Uber because quite a few things have been happening there and there is a larger story to be told around the business model and around the gig economy in general. But if you're in Australia, another thing that's happened over the last couple of weeks has been... The ACCC has put forward a report, a ruling on the power of big tech platforms, topic that we've been discussing in season five quite extensively. And the regulator has come up with a whole number of recommendations for how they would rein in the power of platforms such as Google and Facebook in particular when it comes to the spreading of fake news, the way they appropriate journalistic content and how they limit competition in the markets that they're in. A riveting read at 613 pages. And whilst the two of us have commended the ACCC on their diligent and very comprehensive analysis of Google and Facebook's dominance of online advertising, We've also written a short op-ed piece that we will include in the show notes talking about the fact that the report is really largely very good news for Google and Facebook because it fundamentally reaffirms and cements their business model. The business model, of course, being that they are in the business of exploiting user data for advertising. So our point is that the report does not challenge the fundamental reality of that business model, but rather tries to regulate the negative effects that stem from its execution. And that presents a problem insofar as it basically now turns that business model into a given reality that we all have to live with and the outcomes being merely a natural flow on from this. Then there's been a whole host of articles on a variety of security breaches 
from legit looking iPhone lightning cables that will hijack your computer to remote start apps for cars that allows hackers to take control of the cars. There's been some interesting news about a phenomenon called freaking, where people dial into phones that are installed in elevators to freak people out. And of course, all of these news come off the back of the DEFCON hacker conference that happened while we were on a break. But this is the first episode of season six of The Future this week, and this is the weird and the wonderful, so we're not going to tackle any of these today. No, and neither are we going to tackle some of the other weird and wonderful stories, such as disruption in the toilet paper industry, which Sandra and I thought we might bring up because it allows us to say shit, but then we decided there's really more interesting stories here. The more interesting stories this week have to do with the music industry. Today, after all, is the 50th anniversary of the Woodstock Music Festival. And Woodstock really has had a legacy. Of course, it wasn't the first really big music festival, but it was the one that everybody remembers. And it's the one that catalyzed the rise of the modern monetized music festival. Today, music festivals are really, really big business. In the US alone, for instance, this year, there'll be roughly 100 multi-day large festivals akin to Woodstock, most of them hosted by one company called Live Nation with more revenue than most traditional record labels today. And of course, our listeners would have heard about Coachella or Lollapalooza or South by Southwest. But the really, really interesting thing about music festivals today is that they actually follow one of the megatrends that we look at here at the University of Sydney Business School, which is that of urbanization. So whilst music festivals used to be rural affairs, they have today become a large part of city development strategies. And most of them are now attached to big cities. And there's a great article by Richard Florida in City Lab, which is titled The Rise and Urbanization of Big Music Festivals. And in this article, he reports on research done by Patrick Adler, who's an academic at University of Toronto School of Cities, who looked into where festivals actually take place these days in the United States. And he has some really interesting data. And his research shows that 86% of today's large festivals, that are those with at least 25,000 people in attendance, take place in metro areas. And that is up from 75% only a decade ago. And very few of these large festivals now take place in rural areas, which is quite significant. And we see a very similar trend in places like Australia, where although we have the Woodford Folk Festival, which is out in Woodfordia, Queensland, we do have festivals like Splendor in the Grass or Ultra Australia, which are very much in urban centers or within suburbs of bigger cities or towns. But the music story we really want to talk about today actually takes place somewhere very different. Our first story comes from Bloomberg, and it is called Bollywood Rapper Sets Viewer Record YouTube Isn't Talking About. Now, imagine you're a moderately successful Indian rapper. You've gotten a few number one hits in India, and you've been on a few Bollywood soundtracks. But now you've managed to make it really big on YouTube, much like Psy and Taylor Swift. You've broken the YouTube record of most views in a day. And yet no one knows about it. 
So this is rapper Bacha, whose real name is Aditya Singh with his song Pagal, who within 24 hours of posting his new music video has broken a record that not even Taylor Swift managed to break. 75 million views in one day. That is more than Korean boy band BTS, that is more than Ariana Grande and more than Tay-Tay. So why then did YouTube not formally acknowledge this record? And that's what the story is about. The first rumors were that the video had benefited from farms and bots doing the views, so basically fake views. But turns out there was actually a different explanation, which is that the rapper and his record label had purchased advertisements from Google and YouTube that would embed the videos within other music videos or between them. So this is an interesting practice that I, for one, didn't know about whereby YouTube actually counts the views of those music videos that are put as ads inside other videos, which means that you can effectively buy yourself millions of views by embedding music videos as ads inside other videos. And let's make it clear, this is not a practice that only Bacha is guilty of. This is a widespread practice, so Taylor Swift videos and all other videos would have benefited from the same moves. Many music companies have now moved on to ads. So music companies today either buy ads that direct viewers to the music video or employ the music itself in the ad. And so what is interesting here is that Bacha basically made use of a service that Google or YouTube as the Google subsidiary actively promotes to its channels. So while using YouTube advertising in that way is now common practice, what makes this a particularly interesting story is the scale and size of the Indian market. India is both YouTube's largest market and home to its most popular channel. Turns out there's actually quite a few very interesting facts about internet usage in India. And this is where we want to give a shout out to SPI's Scottish friend from Singapore, Simon Kemp. Very shortly, we will feature a one-on-one -on -one interview with Simon Kemp, who has been working with some of the world's biggest companies, with Google, with Coca-Cola, Nestle. But he's most well known for publishing every year the state of digital, which is basically everything you need to know about Internet and the use of Internet around the world. He develops that every year in collaboration with Hootsuite and We Are Social. So keep an ear out for our special with Simon. And so let's have a look at some of his data that he collected about India as a background to understanding why this story is so interesting. First of all, there's the sheer size of the Indian market. There are 560 million active internet users in India. Who on average spend 7 hours and 47 minutes per day on the internet, which is a lot. And guess what? After Google, the place they mostly go to is YouTube. YouTube has 1.35 billion monthly visitors in India and significantly they spend almost 17 minutes per visit on the site, which is vastly more than any other site in Simon's ranking. Video is also the most searched item on Google, followed by download and song. And 97% of people in India watch videos online. That explains why... India is so important for YouTube, but it also explains why an artist that is little known outside of India can top this ranking. 
But it's not just the sheer size of the market that makes this possible. The other very interesting thing is that if you were to purchase ads in India for about 5 million rupees, which is just a little over $72,000 US, you could theoretically generate about 67 million video ad impressions in India. Which contrasts markedly with the 1.5 million US dollars you would have to spend to generate 60 million impressions on the US or UK YouTube side. And these numbers are reported in the Economic Times of India and by Bloomberg. We will include the links in the show notes. So this explains how with relatively little investment, Sony, which is Bacha's label, was able to catapult the video to this record number. And we do know that advertising was heavily involved in creating those numbers because the number of likes and dislikes and genuine engagement that the video did in fact get were far below what genuine views would normally generate. But there is a bigger story here, not unlike the story behind the success of Old Town Road, Lil Nas X's surprise hit that made it to the number one place in the Billboard charts. And the bigger story here is about YouTube's business model, of course, or Google's in a wider sense. So YouTube finds itself in a real pickle here. On the one hand, of course, it can't be seen to let anyone game its rankings and mess with its records. Because uh, they do want to promote genuine engagement on the platform. Absolutely. But on the other hand, they also don't want to dissuade any of the advertisers from buying their ads, which, you know, drove this phenomenon. Which is indeed the way that YouTube works, the way it makes money. And so this story really is so interesting because once more, it brings to the fore what the actual business model of these platforms is. So places like Facebook and Google and YouTube, they want us to believe that their services is providing community or allowing the sharing of videos or promoting artists or enabling search and finding things on the internet. On the other hand, the best way to generate engagement on this social media platform is to buy it. To engage in advertising. And so every once in a while, a story like this comes along that pierces just a little the fine illusion that these platforms create and highlight the rather messy reality of what it takes to utilize the algorithms that drive engagement on the, on the platform um, by purchasing your way to the top. So on the one hand, a platform like YouTube enables people to game the system by purchasing positions in these rankings. On the other hand, they cannot be seen to reveal that publicly because then the magic's gone. And so what this means for artists and labels is that you can actually engineer your popularity on the platform, which then in turn will drive sales in this brave new economy. That's a phenomenon worth researching, actually. Yeah, here's an academic title for it. Um, how about From Fake Views to Fame, Engineering for Popularity in the Algorithmic Attention Economy? And if you want to do that bit of research... Call us. Call us. Which brings us to our next story. From fake views to fake restaurants. We had a fake restaurant before on the podcast. Yes, that was our episode when we discussed The Shed, the number one restaurant on TripAdvisor in London that did not exist. That was an actual, real fake restaurant. The fake restaurants today, they're not that fake, but they're virtual or ghost 
kitchens, so to speak. And the story is about food delivery services such as Uber Eats or Deliveroo. The story comes from the New York Times and it's titled The Rise of the Virtual Restaurant. So the article concerns a new phenomenon that is driven by these delivery platforms whereby either existing restaurants create new brands exclusively for these platforms, which are then called virtual restaurants. So let's say a burger place also creates a pizza brand. They start making pizza, but you can't buy them in the shop. They only trade under a new name as a virtual restaurant on these platforms or there's now restaurants called ghost kitchens that don't actually have a shop front. They exclusively function as kitchens to sell through these delivery apps. The picture in the New York Times is actually quite revealing. It's a pizza place that has big signs in the windows that say we do not carry cash or a cash register on the premises. Delivery only, no slices. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So what's driving this change? So it is Uber and in particular Uber Eats and the range of other delivery companies such as Deliveroo and Grubhub who have become extremely popular not only in the US but also in places like Australia and the UK and France. And similar companies have become widely spread in China, where in densely populated big cities, people use them almost on a daily basis. And indeed, we have a few examples of such companies. Uber Eats has helped about 4,000 virtual restaurants spring up in the US. Travis Kalanick, the former Uber chief executive, has bought a majority stake in Cloud Kitchens, a startup that incubates such ghost kitchens. In Europe, the food delivery app Deliveroo has also started testing such ventures. They put up windowless kitchens called Roo Boxes in really unlikely locations, including derelict parking lots in East London, warehouses in Paris, and so on, where Uber Eats also has tried delivering only kitchens. And we've seen the same trend in China as well, where ghost kitchen startup Panda Selected recently managed to raise more than 50 million US dollars from investors to support the development of virtual restaurants. And so there's different things that we want to highlight with this story. The first one is that as digital companies, Deliveroo or Uber Eats, quite deliberately use the data that they collect in the process of organizing food delivery to suggest to existing restaurant owners to set up certain brands, certain virtual restaurants in areas where there might be unmet needs. So Uber Eats might realize that in a certain area, people order a lot of pizza, but there's not enough restaurants that provide pizza. And so they approach other restaurants in the area if they don't want to maybe add pizza to their menu and maybe create a virtual restaurant brand that then is listed on their platform. Or indeed, and Uber calls this selection gaps on its platform, will invite people to join an accelerator based on these particular selections and incubate the virtual, the ghost kitchens that would then provide this particular type of cuisine. So kitchens set up to exclusively trade on Uber Eats. And in that respect, they become a little bit more like uh, Netflix for food in that Netflix commissions a lot of original content shows that only exist on Netflix and then obviously drive viewership. Platforms such as Uber Eats commission kitchens to trade as restaurant brands that then exclusively exist on their platform, again, as a mechanism in their competition with uh, rival delivery services to have a wider range of products in a certain area. 
And we must say that this trend is not just about startups or about little pizzerias that are looking to expand, but it's also a way for big franchises or traditional restaurant brands to leverage some of their services into this space. So in the US, for instance, the famous Chick-fil-A has fulfillment-only centers, which simply will cook the food, but you cannot stop by and eat it. And so what we want to do is we want to look at the wider implications of where this trend is leading us. And there's two main things we want to highlight here. First is that paradoxically, there's actually the complete opposite trend playing out at the very same time. So whilst on the one hand, we have these um, ghost kitchens or virtual restaurants that exclusively concentrate on cooking and then providing the food without any storefront. The popularity of platforms like Instagram are also driving the experiential cuisine where it's not about the food. It is about being in a particular place and being able to take a particular picture that then you can showcase on Instagram. So we have those two digital platforms, food delivery and Instagram, which are pulling this traditional physical bricks and mortar industry into two opposing directions. On the one hand, restaurant owners create ever more elaborate experiences with nice ambiance and decor and beautiful styling of the food, almost an artistic quality that then becomes Instagrammable. And on the other hand, the exact opposite, where food basically in a very utilitarian way ends up in a brown bag. And in both instances, what is a restaurant is being redefined. And indeed, that trend can contribute to the epidemic of loneliness, which we've talked about previously on the podcast, and we'll include the link in the show notes. And so the other thing that we want to highlight is not only that restaurants are being redefined, but what it means to own a restaurant or to operate the restaurant is also being redefined. Working in a small Italian restaurant in a neighborhood where you know your clients is very different from working in windowless metal boxes that are now known as dark kitchens or operating maybe two or three different restaurants out of the same kitchen. Indeed, in a virtual restaurant with no physical storefront, there is no reason not to run more than one restaurant out of your back kitchen. And so this ties in with another article also from this week in Restaurant Dive, which is a specialist hospitality publication, which reports on Deliveroo's rescue team that will convert struggling restaurants to delivery only. And so what has been reported previously is that many restaurants actually are worse off initially from these delivery services because they take away traditional patronage. And even though they might gain a lot of business through the app, the fact that the app provider takes a 15 to 30 percent cut of the price means that financially many restaurateurs are in difficulties. And so companies like Deliveroo have now started to help these companies to convert from having a shop front to become essentially ghost kitchens financially becoming more successful and in some instances thriving, but in the process changing very much what it means to run a restaurant. And since this trend is predicted to grow quite significantly, so Morgan Stanley has recently come out and estimated that the delivery segment would grow from about 30 billion in 2017 to about 220 billion by 2020. That is a very significant growth. This is a very worthwhile area to keep an eye on and maybe do some research on as well. 
And so here's another title for a potential uh, research paper. When Uber eats your world, how restaurateurs cope with identity stress from delivery apps. Maybe we should make this a proper segment. We should do this every week. Well, maybe, yeah. Well, after all, we are in an academic institution here, and many of the things that we discuss happen now but warrant further investigation. So we think it might be a good idea to highlight certain research opportunities and provide you with a title for your study for free. How is that? Um, that sounds like a segment in the making. We'll think about it a bit more, but that's all we have time for today. Welcome back to Season 6 of The Future This Week. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This was The Future This Week. Made possible by the Sydney Business Insights team and members of the Digital Disruption Research Group. And every week right here with us, our sound editor, Megan Wedge, who makes us sound good. And keeps us honest. Our theme music was composed and played live on a set of garden houses by Lindsay Pollack. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us online on Flipboard, Twitter, or sbi.sydney.edu.au. If you have any news that you want us to discuss, please send them to sbi.sydney.edu.au. Thank you.